the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Welcome to The Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 68, and our guest is Steve Silberman. This is such a thrill, y'all. Steve is an award-winning writer. His articles have appeared in Wired, The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Financial Times, The Boston Globe, and so many other publications. His book, Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity, was released in 2015. The book is a bestseller, an award winner. It is critically acclaimed. I read it and absolutely loved it. I also loved his podcast with his good friend, David Crosby, which I've talked about on this show before. That podcast is called Freak Flag Flying, and we discussed that in some detail during the show. Steve and I caught up on the Zoom machine back in August of 2020. He from his home in San Francisco, and me from the patio of my favorite bar in the world, Barley and Vine Beer Garden in Orlando, Florida, where the owner, my dear friend Benji Gray, graciously agreed to let me use their Wi-Fi, a reality necessitated by the fact that my internet was down here at Marinade Studios as a result of some less than stellar tree work next door. Follow Steve on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, he's an excellent follow on social media. Um, and each each of those accounts offers something different. He, he kind of uses them differently. Uh, he, his Instagram has been a source of light for me of late. Um, and he's just such an outstanding guy. And I'm, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. SteveSilberman.com for all things Steve. Everyone, it is my great honor to bring you my conversation with Steve Silberman. Hey everybody, before we get to our conversation with Steve, I want to say some things about the beautiful music that you're hearing. It's by our friends Asleep in Plains, all one word, Asleep in Plains, which is the work of songwriter and multi-instrumentalist James Reed and his creative partner, Philly Kennedy. You can find the guys on all major streaming platforms. Uh, Look for a full-length album coming very soon. This song is called Universe. Uh, I really, really dig what those guys are doing, and they're also just really great guys. So check them out, Asleep in Planes, wherever you find your music. All right, y'all, here comes my conversation with Steve Silver. This 
Hey, Steve. How are you? Should I use headphones? I don't know. It's up to you. You sound good. Uh, you're not getting, are you getting leakage? Uh, no. Okay, great. Are we doing so. audio or, or uh, video? Just audio, um, okay, if that's cool. Um, yeah, just audio. Cool. How nice you doing? You. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. How am I? Yeah, how are you? Well, uh, you know, it's a weird time to be alive, but uh, I had an absolutely wonderful thing happen, or I made a wonderful thing happen yesterday. Cool. What was that? Is, um, there's a guy in my neighborhood who is the principal cellist for the Santa Cruz Orchestra, and he's been doing free concerts um, on a stoop about four blocks away. Uh, but the problem is that he got written up in the newspaper and uh, so suddenly, like, hordes of people, like, started showing up for his free concerts. And um, my husband and I are both very high risk for COVID. So we can't really hang out in crowds, you know. Um, but uh, I got the notion of hiring him, really, to do a backyard, fully masked, socially distanced concert for just our friends in the building and our next door neighbors and my landlord and my husband and one friend and my sister. Wow. And so in the backyard yesterday under this beautiful Monterey pine tree, he played Bach, uh, the song Strange Fruit, which was made famous by Billie Holiday. Mm. Um, uh, a Spanish composer I'd never heard of. Uh, just a really lovely uh, repertoire of both contemporary and classical pieces. Wow. And it was a beautiful sunny day and we all, you know, stayed more than six feet apart. And um, it was a moment of humanity in the middle of this crazy BS. Oh, that's yeah. so beautiful. That's per that's a perfect place to start too. Cause I did want to start with music and your love of music and, oh, and all of your connections to all these wonderful people and your relationships with these wonderful people. Um, music for you when was it when did you first go like because it's obviously a huge part of your life right when did you first go wow this is something incredibly special to me this is something that i can really sink my teeth into well i'll tell you uh first the embarrassing part okay. and then the and then the beginning of the cool part <laughs> um the embarrassing part was that you know i grew up i was a little kid in the late 60s um i'm a so-called trailing edge baby boomer so I was able to see what was going on in music and culture and, you know, hippies dancing naked in the fountain in Central Park and all that. But I was not old enough to participate. But I heard a couple of songs when I was very, very young. One of them was Candles in the Rain by Melanie. Uh, and the other was Atlantis by Donovan. 
Uh, and there was probably also incense and peppermints by the uh, strawberry alarm clock. You know, uh, proto-hippie kitsch, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, but I bought all of those singles, you know, and I used to weep while hearing Atlantis or whatever. <laughs> um, but it was really the first album that I ever bought uh, that completely changed my life in an absolutely permanent way that resonates every single day of my life now because of what happened afterwards. Um, first record I ever bought was Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Deja Vu, um, which is having its 50th anniversary this year. And I can tell you something that is actually of real news value that hardly Ooh. anyone knows. Right. <laughs> which Fine. is that a, a multiple CD box set of Deja Vu with uh, extra tracks and outtakes and, uh, and a huge booklet is coming out uh, later cool. this year. No one knows this yet, actually. Cool. Very few people know this, yeah. But um, so I bought Deja Vu and I love the whole album. It's, you know, it's considered one of the classics of the period. Um, but what really got to me was David Crosby's title track for that album, Deja Vu. Mm -hmm. I just loved the, uh, the um, weirdness of it. It's kind of, David uses a lot of kind of jazz chords mm -hmm. because he was very influenced by McCoy Tyner, John Coltrane. Um, and he had also been Joni Mitchell's boyfriend briefly. And they were both really into open tunings and non-standard tunings. So their time together, even though it was relatively brief, transformed both of their music for the better. And in fact, David got Joni her first recording contract. Mm -hmm. So um, I really got into David Crosby. And in fact, I remembered that I had heard his music for the very first time a little bit before that. I was in a sandal shop in Provincetown, which is like, you know, Provincetown was a really great hippie play. It was like Greenwich Village North sort of. Uh, in the late 60s and I had like never heard music as beautiful and I went up to the counter and I said what is this music like I must have been about 10 or 11 and the guy said something that sounded like a law firm Crosby Stills and Nash <laughs> like I was like oh okay so Deja Vu got me and then uh, David uh, shortly after that came out with if I could only remember my name his first solo album recorded with, you know, Joni Mitchell, Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh, Mickey Hart, um, Grace Slick, Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane. Like it was basically the entire generation of psychedelicized folk musicians in the Bay Area. And it was, there's nothing like it. It's still probably my, it's easily one of my favorite albums up there with Miles Davis kind of blue, et cetera. But this is what I didn't expect to happen. So I became a complete uh, teen fanatic fanboy, uh, particularly of David. And, you know, I would, uh, I collected tapes, you know, uh, unofficial record, live recordings. I had the best Crosby tape collection in America probably for a while. When he went to jail because he had a meltdown in the middle 80s uh, around his use of free base cocaine, he had a spectacular public fall from grace, um, went to jail in Texas. You know, I like wrote him a letter, you know, <laughs> never got an answer, obviously. But this unexpected thing happened, which was after he got out of jail, 
uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash decided to put together a box set. And uh, a friend of theirs named Raymond Foy, who's also a friend of mine, uh, was consulting with Nash about uh, photos. And because Nash has a great photo collection, Foy is a curator. So they were holed up in a motel in Los Gatos. And uh, they were trying to fill a, a third CD with rarities, you know. And so Raymond kept telling them, well, Steve Silverman says blah, blah, blah. Well, Steve Silverman says the best performance of blah, blah was in blah, blah. <laughs> and so they're, finally they're like, who is this guy? You know? And so they invited me down. I get a call. I'm literally, I'm a wait, working as a waiter in a restaurant, right? I literally get a call, Steve, are you available? I'm like, Crosby, Stills, and Nash want to meet you. What? <laughs> like, wow. So, so wow. I went down to, to the hotel. I didn't, by the way, immediately get along with David because he was very guarded. You uh, know, he, he's uh, kind of famously an asshole uh, mm -hmm. to a lot of the public, but he's never been an asshole to me. But mm -hmm. when we first met, he was, you know, relatively recently out of jail. He was still very guarded. He'd been a star since he was a teenager in the birds. So, uh, or at least his early 20s. So, um, I, you know, it took me a while to get to know him. But what happened was, the, the killer thing, I got him online because mm -hmm. I found out that he was into, he was a fax addict, as Raymond said, I thought. And I, you know, when I heard that, I said, fax addict? He should have email, you know? <laughs> so I got him, I got him online and it turned out to be like, you know, him and the internet was like a fish in the ocean. Like he loves the internet, you know? Mm. And even though he'd been um, kind of had this buffer around him because of his fame, he actually really loves to communicate with people as uh. long as he's, you know, in a safe situation. Mm. So we ended up like chatting in Unix chat, if anyone remembers what Unix was, uh, like all night when CSN was on tour in London. And, um, He's now my best older friend. David wow. is absolutely, I'm not even bragging. Like yeah, we yeah. talk almost every day um, and I, I adore him. Uh, and um, you know, now it's like, if he writes a song, he sends it to me to find out if it's good. Right. That's <laughs> so amazing. It's a really, uh, you know, and eventually I became a big deadhead. Uh, yeah. Saw the dead hundreds of times. Uh, dead and Jerry Garcia band. Um, the you might say the the soul the vessel in which my soul was formed was dead shows on lsd basically uh. when, I, when i was young um and it was sort of a you know uh psychedelics have been used in traditional indigenous cultures for centuries and millennia probably for for initiating young people and mm. so i self-initiated uh at grateful dead shows and um, and then, you know, virtually everybody who I liked in rock and roll was very influenced by jazz. So mm. then I got into jazz and now that's mostly what I listen to. I still listen to The Dead. I still listen to Crosby. His next album, which was just finished the other day on his wow. birthday, is going to be great. But mostly what I listen to at home is like Miles Davis, Bill Evans, uh, all, all, all kinds of music. And, you know, I, I guiltily confess that even though I'm a writer, um, I probably spend more time listening to music than I do reading. 
Interesting. Yeah. Oh, we got to get unpack that a little bit then. Okay. So like, well, actually, I'm going to put a pin in that because I do want to ask you about the dead because it seems like I read somewhere or heard you say on a podcast that your first dead show was like the dead and the Allman Brothers and the band. Was that? Am I remembering that correctly? That's true. Walking Flynn, 1973. And believe me, I had no idea what I was seeing. You know? Oh, my I gosh. Was, I lied to my parents because my friend who was supposed to uh, go up there with me copped out at the last minute. I was going to go, you know. So yeah. I took a Greyhound bus up to Watkins Glen from the city. And um, in a way, it was a miserable experience. I like the weather was really weird. Like there was a frost in the middle of August. Like it was bizarre. There, wow. there was a mudslide, you know. I lost all of my like sleeping bag. <laughs> I lost it. Couldn't pee for like, you know, 36 hours. Because I was so far from the Port of San, when I finally made it to the Port of San, it was on fire because people had set it on fire for warmth, you know. But I, would, I turned out to be a very lucky guy because the dead played a sound check the day before the official start of the concert um, because there were so many people there. They figured they would entertain people. Right. They ended up playing a completely improvised suite of music that is one of the best things that they ever played in their entire life, the so-called Watkins Glen Soundcheck. And then, wow. as my life evolved, I was eventually asked to co-produce a box set for The Grateful Dead called So Many Roads, which was supposed to consist of entirely rarities and non-album tracks. And so I actually put the Watkins Glen Soundcheck on the box set, and it's now like this legendary piece of music but wow. it's just gorgeous and after that the second concert by them i saw which was 8674 at roosevelt stadium in jersey city was famously also one of their peaks you know and wow. so the first two dead shows i ever saw were all-time career topping legendary mythical you know wow shows. yeah and so i just kept going you know basically that's amazing. I, you know, I know you went to Oberlin, but I don't know if yeah. you if you play. Do you play anything? No, I don't. And believe me, that's the most uh, frequently asked question that I've, yeah, I bet. I've ever asked. Other <laughs> than, do you have an autistic child? Because I'm <laughs> called neurotribes about right, autism, right, and I don't. Right. But, um, and you're neurotypical. No. What's right. that? And you're neurotypical. You describe. And I'm book, neurotypical, right? right. right. Um, but I. Uh, I love musicians. Most of my friends are musicians. I get crushes on musicians. I'm <laughs> fanatical about music. Um, so no, I don't play anything. But Oberlin was a great place to be because you could walk over to the conservatory any hour of the day right. and there would be you know, 10 people playing Bach on the organ or yeah. you know, whatever. And there was also lots of um, sort of more avant-garde stuff going on. Uh, this is an avant-garde, but they had a gamelan, you know, which is this Indonesian percussion uh, orchestra, which was amazing. They had, um, oh, all kinds of people came through, uh, um, folk singers and Jerry Garcia played. And uh, it was, oh, Talking Heads played twice before they were big. Mm. Uh, I think their Talking Heads 77, I think had just come out. Wow. And so there was a very, we, we saw Devo, 
Like there was wow. a very, very broad range of um, every possible kind of music from all over the world. And so Oberlin was just a great place for me to be. Right. Uh, but no, I never did pick up an instrument. It's one of the few regrets of my life. Oh, it was never too late, man. It's never too late to pick it up. Yeah, no, I know. What, what do you play? Uh, guitar. Very and poorly. Who, who are your heroes? <laughs> you know, I don't really have a lot of guitar heroes. Most of my musical heroes are songwriters. Jason Isbell would be probably oh, really? my greatest creative yeah. hero overall. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, some obvious ones like Dylan. Um, mostly I get into song structure and lyrics. I get really uh -huh. lost in that. Um, cause I'm a very rudimentary guitar player, right? Mm -hmm. So I know eight chords well, and then I can fake a handful more if I have to, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's about it. So it's mostly like when I, when I write something, it's, it's a folk song, you know, it's, yeah, it's almost nice. always protest music. It's, oh, it's almost, we need it. You know? we need yeah, it. yeah. 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 But, um, in fact, Crosby, you know, one of the thing, one of Crosby's frustrations actually is that he wishes he could write a song that would have the protest impact of Ohio. Oh. Um, he's said that to me many, many times. Like, wow. he's almost praying to the muse, you know. Right. It's funny, he wrote a song called Capital, um, which was on an album called Sky Trails, I believe, um, just a couple years ago. And it was before the election, or a few years ago. It was before the election, and um, it's about how corrupt Washington is. And when I heard it, I thought, well, it's a little dark. I mean, I'm <laughs> president, you know, it's all fine. Total prophecy, <laughs> you know, like Dylan-esque prophecy. Like Capitalism, one of the best songs about our current historical moment, and it was written while Obama was still president. Uh, wow. Gosh, it's amazing how much some of those songs just fit perfectly right now. Some of the songs that were written 30 and 40 years ago just fit. I just uh, interviewed Chuck Prophet and he has a new a song oh, nice. on his new record. Yeah, it was great. His new record's wonderful. And um, I guess it comes out next week, but it's absolutely outstanding. And he has like a couple of, you know, anti-Trump songs as he called them. And one of them isn't really an anti-Trump song so much as it's, it's about Nixon and it's called uh, Nixon Land. It's actually been released as a single. Cause he, cause Chuck w grew up in the same town that Nixon was from. Um, it, Whittier, was it? Uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Yeah. But but all that stuff that he talks about and all in in especially talking about Nixon, it's just like Jesus Christ. All of this is so relevant right now. But it feels I wasn't I wasn't around then. It feels worse to me than what I've read about. You know. Can I can I give you a, a tip? Yeah. Check out a song that Rye Cooter recorded, uh, I don't know, probably six years ago or something, called I Want My Crown. Okay. And it, it describes Donald Trump to a frickin' T. Wow. Like, it's, okay. it's another example of total prophecy. Wow. All right. I'll do that. Thank you. Um, you mentioned that I, I want to talk about Freak Flag Flying, your podcast with oh, sure. David. That was so wonderful, and I enjoyed so much. Um, you mentioned earlier that may, may spark something in my mind. You said you develop crushes on musicians. You also talked about your relationship with David. You ever had a crush on David? Was that ever part you know, of the really, I, I don't, um, okay. which is probably good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but I do, I adore him completely. Yeah. He's beautiful to me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I love him. 
you know, when my phone vibrates in my pocket and I pick it up and it says David Crosby, which it does almost every day, That's it's surreal. like, instead of saying like, oh shit, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's amazing, <laughs> wow, awesome. No. And, um, but I was never, God, I don't want to say this. You know, I was never like physically attracted to him. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Young Stephen Stills on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Stephen was just beautiful. Yeah, Look at yeah. that cover of him of his first solo album, sitting in the snow or whatever. <laughs> right. like he, he was he was a freaking stud. Yeah. yeah. Um, David, I do not. Let, let me think if there are any crushes I can. You know, I used to have a crush on Jackson Brown. Nick Drake, yeah. come to me. <laughs> Nick Drake is like one of the most beautiful guys I ever saw in my uh, life. Um, you know, there. You know, Joni Mitchell. It's like, believe me, I wouldn't yeah. have said no. Well, <laughs> <You know>? uh, <laughs> Right. And many didn't. <laughs> they all said yes. You know? <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, I hope Joni's doing well uh, because yeah. she's in recovery from a terrible aneurysm. Right. But um, her music, you know, David always says that Joni was the best songwriter of their generation, like easily up there with Dylan. And yeah. I can't disagree. I mean, she's unbelievable. I mean, I can't... Uh, her stuff is very relevant now too. Right. I mean, when you listen, like uh, all those records, when you listen to Blue is obviously the most revered one, I guess I would say. But like when I listen to Blue and we have a copy on vinyl, it's like when I put it on, I can't do anything else. Like I just yeah. need to sit and spend time with that music and that record and what she's saying and how, she, how she's saying it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, her later stuff, which has been somewhat overlooked, um, is very prophetic of this era. Like the, uh, a song called Doggy Dog, which is very much about like, you know, end stage capitalism. <laughs> um, she's got a song called Passion Play, uh, which very much describes the uh, religious hypocrisy of our era, where, you know, you have evangelicals being really pro-death, even though they, you know, they call themselves pro-life. Right. Um, and so she is someone who, even though, you know, I can't say she's underappreciated because everyone knows she's a, you know, freaking diva, you know. But um, she, I think, is going to be up for a big reappraisal um, after she goes in the same way that everybody now knows that Miles Davis was, you know, mm. beyond belief, one of the greatest artists of the 20th century in any medium. Right. <laughs> you know? And I, I think she's going to eventually going to be recognized as, way ahead of her time right i hope so she certainly deserves it the yeah. freak flag flying the podcast that you had with david was wonderful and uh I, folks should go listen to it especially if they're enjoying this conversation but um i want to ask you about it especially being a podcaster i'm sure i'm interested in like how the idea came about and then how much were you you were producing it, if I'm not mistaken, and like how well, not really. It was produced okay. by Osiris Media. Okay, but I can tell you how it happened because it's a really cute story. Nice, actually. yes. Please. And I'll tell you stuff that, that I'll tell you stuff that was invisible in the podcast. Cool. Um, this is how it happened, uh, and that alone is a great story. Um, I was seeing Trey Anastasio, who is the lead guitarist of Fish. Of he had a, a a solo show with a band called Ghosts of the Forest at the Greek Theater. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was young, I wrote a book about the Grateful Dead called Skeleton Key, a Dictionary for Deadheads. And there was this band that I kept hearing about 
there was this new young band, and everyone was saying, oh, they're the next Grateful Dead, you know. So that band was Fish. They were from Vermont, but they were not big yet. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I liked them. I'd gotten turned, to them, uh, turned on to them very early on. Um, and I thought, oh, they're cool. And I liked their lyrics. I thought they were goofy. Mm-hmm. Maybe not profound, but goofy. Right. And um, so I got in touch with the young lyricist, Tom Marshall. And um, we had a hilarious exchange, which made it into the books, Gilton Key. Um, and we were kind of buds, but then something funny happened to both of us. We both got famous, basically. <laughs> Fish became, you know, they could sell out Madison Square Garden for a month, something, yeah. you know, yeah. and not play a single repeat, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, my book, uh, Neurotribes, became an international bestseller in mm-hmm. 20 languages. And, um, so we just kind of like drifted apart. Uh-huh. Nothing bad, but we drifted apart. So I'm in the Greek theater waiting for Ghosts of the Forest, and I see Tom Marshall, who's an extremely handsome guy, walking mm-hmm. through the crowd, and somebody said to me, look, there's Tom Marshall. And I said, oh yeah, that's cool. Um, we used to be buds, but I'm sure he doesn't even remember me, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I'm um, talking to my friend, next thing I know, I feel this huge bear hug, and it's Tom. <laughs> and he remembered me, and he was like, dude, we have to get you to do a podcast for Osiris Media. <laughs> so I did not, people are just trying to get me to do regular podcasts. Um, maybe I should, actually. <laughs> I, think you, I think you should. Well, in any case, I knew that I had one in me with David, you know. Yeah. So I uh, called David. He was into it. Um, I flew down to uh, where he lives in Santa Inez, mm-hmm. uh, near L.A., Central Coast. And uh, spent almost, I think, five days, really, at his house. Um, so there I am, like, sleeping, you know, in this little uh, sort of a guest cabin, you know, or something. sleeping in this cabin. On the wall is, you know, the original lyrics of Guinevere in his handwriting. Wow. Um, pictures of him with Obama. <laughs> it's like, holy moly, like all these like holy relics of you know kind of uh you know baby boomer (laughs) whatever uh like all around me you know and dave and i had a blast uh he 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 loves to eat he loves to smoke pot so do i Uh um you know we just we had a great time went out to restaurants and then for a few hours every day we would go to the studio of this friend of his named joel jacks who's a professional uh engineer and we would talk, you know. The first day we both got high, I realized, no, somebody needs to steer, you know. <laughs> so the second day, Crosby whips out the blunt, and I'm like, David, I'm actually going to pass, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and we got into some really um, tough stuff because I knew that since I was his friend, that I would be able to ask him, about things that if the if normally the press asks him he gets pissed off or gives one of his routine answers or something like that and so um i knew that i would be able to get under the skin of his normal public mask mm-hmm. and that he, he would be able to be honest with me about mm-hmm. stuff like how he feels about crosby stills and ashton young you know because there's been tremendous bad blood between them um mm-hmm. in the in recent years and that makes me sad, you know. Right. And I 
plus I know Nash as well. And, you know, they've been feuding for years and it's sad to me. So I got into all this stuff. He, he made some comments about Jerry Garcia that as soon as he said them, I knew they would become immortal. Um, <laughs> and so we had a blast. And, um, you know, then I flew back, it aired, everyone loved it. It turned out to be an enormous amount of work. Um, I also got to play all this unbelievably rare music that yeah. the world had never heard because I said to David right before I left San Inez, I said, David, I'm going to play a bunch of unofficial recordings of yours on the show. And if you say no, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I played, you know, everything from him sitting in with Steely Dan to play Wooden Chips yeah. uh, in New York, that. which I had seen. I had been there. Wow. And, you know, just ton, a, a bird's demo, like, you know, tons of stuff. Um, wow. And so it was a real treat for everyone, including me and David. What kind of preparation were you doing for it? Thank you for all of that. That's so fun. What, what kind of preparation were you doing? Were you writing down questions? Did you have an outline of how, where you wanted to go? Or were you just like, were you all just rapping, basically? Uh, we were just rapping, but it's, a, it's an unreproducible experiment because I've been preparing for it my whole life. Right. You know, it's like, I, you know, I mean, I, I thought I would ask the things that I thought most fans would want to know about. And I don't mean just fans, you know, I mean like crazy Crosby obsessives. Right. They're out there. You know? Right. And right. So, so I asked those questions and, you know, I let his responses guide us really. Uh, Right. I like to think I'm a good listener. And mm. so I listened, you know, and, and we both steered. And it was That's good. awesome. You guys bonded over technology with the, with changing the, the messages and things like that. And technology is such a huge part of your life. You've written for Wired for many years. and I did. I no um, longer do, but yeah. Okay. You did write for Wired for many years and you, and you've, you've, you're, it's very tied to your life. Technology is, but you also meditate. And I wonder, cause a lot of times those two things for me in my life are at odds, right? Um, the constant, uh, checking of my Twitter specifically, <laughs> um, all, you know, uh, Instagram for that matter, email even, and now I have 45 email accounts of various types, you know, for work and for this and for that. And so at, at all times, those things are at odds. Is that true for you also, or does one yeah, get in the way of the other? Except, kind of, except, you know, if meditation, I'm an old student of Zen Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I started meditating because Allen Ginsberg told me to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was Allen's student when I was a teenager and mm -hmm. then became his teaching assistant. And uh, one day he was um, teaching a course at Naropa University, uh, it's called now, in Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And uh, Naropa is a Buddhist university. So he asked the class, how many of you have signed up for meditation instruction and you know a few shy hands you know went up <laughs> and uh, he said uh you're all amateurs in a professional universe and so i didn't want to be an amateur in a professional universe so i signed up to learn uh, zazen zen sitting meditation from a guy named maizumi roshi who was the head of uh, la zen center and um I haven't stopped, basically. I took a hiatus for a couple of years, but a Dutch friend of mine like sort of 
I don't want to say shamed me back into it, but you know, I was really missing it. If I don't meditate uh, every day, I, it's like not brushing my teeth. Like, mm. uh, you know, um, yes, I turn the phone off, you know, uh, and when I don't turn the phone off and I hear those pings, which come into my life every five minutes, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, uh, ah, I forgot to turn the phone off. You know? Yeah. But um, meditation turns out to be a very basic tool for living in this crazy world without going crazy. Mm. Um, it has kept me more sane. It reminds me to be more compassionate. I don't want to project a bunch of stuff onto meditation because in a way, the best thing about it is that it's wordless and um, can't really be boiled down to a set of, you know, well, this is what meditation does for you. Right. Anybody who's saying that is bullshitting you, basically. Right. Um, meditation itself is its own reward. And, um, and I do the simplest, most one -oh, Zen 101 form of meditation, which is called breath counting. So I'm like aware of my in-breath and out-breath and count. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, j it works for me. You know, by works, I don't mean it's turned me into a good person. <laughs> I mean, I feel better when right. I meditate. Right, um, which, you know. which will lead to you continuing to grow into a better person, right? Like if yes. you're doing better, we're going to be better. Yeah, I think it's funny. It's interesting. Meditation comes up a lot on this show, but it's interesting um, how like... Um, people have this sense of you, you know, you, you can be good at it or not good at it, sort of like yoga. And it's like, no, nah, no, that's not really, that doesn't, no, you, you, you can do it. And if it works for you, awesome. And if it doesn't, then you're keep trying. Right. It's, it's almost like, right. You know, well, the main, the, it's sort of the main excuse that I always hear. Even Crosby told me this actually, he was like, well, I can't meditate because I can't stop thinking. That's a misconception. Yeah. You know, as the poet Gary Snyder said to me in a class, uh, you can't stop thinking. The brain makes thoughts the way a Mr. Coffee machine makes coffee. Mm. You know? And so it's like, once you realize that it's not about stopping thinking, then you can do it. You know, like, I mean, it's, it's worth getting good, solid, simple meditation instruction from a good place. Okay. Like an established Dharma community like mine is San Francisco Zen Center. If for a slightly different style, there's Spirit Rock. I don't do anything like visualization. It drives me freaking nuts to have a, you know, a life coach or something, you know, coaching mm. me through my meditation. I want formlessness and luminous emptiness. <laughs> and it's there for me on my breath. You know, I don't need any fancy visualizations. But some people, you know, it works for them. There's a so, common thread uh, there, Steve. Grateful Dead, jazz, formless meditation. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> There's no, a common thread in your life. No, I'm sure my whole life is about some very tedious, simple, kitschy slogan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, what else? Your life is so fascinating. What else did you get from Ginsburg? Meditation is one huge legacy of your relationship with Alan Ginsburg. What other things did you learn? What, have you, what did you take away from that relationship? Well, he transmitted to his students an entire body of literature that was like the hipsters of literature going back to before Shakespeare, really. Mm -hmm. You know, so William Blake, you know, this visionary multimedia 
artist, mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of years before the multimedia term was invented. Mm -hmm. um, uh, lots of uh, sort of insurgent tradition in literature um, and a tradition of sincerity and truthfulness. Um, mm -hmm. And I would say that the notion that honest words can change the world was probably one of the biggest lessons that I got from him. So mm -hmm. my book, Neurotribes, um, which is a history of autism and the concept of neurodiversity, mm -hmm. um, was very much inspired by Alan's greatest poem. And uh, everyone thinks I'm going to say Howl, but I'm not. <laughs> I thought you were going to say <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Howl's great, but um, Caddish is his poem for his mother, who had schizophrenia and who died in an institution of a botched lobotomy that Alan was forced to sign her in for as a, like, he was like 14, you know. So he had tremendous uh, guilt about that. And he ended up writing this poem called Caddish, which speaks up for all these people who have been marginalized in society and put in institutions. Mm -hmm. And Neurotribes was very much influenced by that uh, redemptive ambition. That's a really good segue into writing. So I, I, I did read Neurotribes and I loved it. Um, the, I, and one of the things that stands out to me about your writing is that you're taking, like there's a lot to synthesize there when you talk about the history of autism and neurodiversity. There's a ton of stuff and some of it can get kind of clinical, but you managed to make it um, remain narrative and compelling and it, and it clips along. Um, I guess I have a couple of questions. One is how you, where the inspiration strikes. So for that one, there are a couple of things and you talk about it in the introduction to the book, but, um, but for your writing projects in general, where inspiration strikes typically, um, and then how you go about taking these like scientific concepts and making them clip along the way you do in your writing. Well, the very first moment that I thought I might be a writer, I remember walking home from school. I was probably in like fifth grade or something, maybe even younger, fourth grade. And I noticed that there, that there was this sentence in my head that seemed to keep unschooling. You know, it was like, there was like this voice in my head that was like saying words all the time. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> You know, I wonder if that means I'm supposed to be a writer, you know? Wow. And then uh, a, a teacher, uh, Miss Prince, wherever she may be, um, told me to enter a poetry contest uh, for New York City students run by Stanford University. And so I wrote my first poem. And I remember when I was writing it, I had a very distinct feeling of like, well, I suck at sports. I'm a klutz. I'm always the second to last pick. You know, like, uh, you know, always the second to last pick. Um, and, uh, you know, I just felt inept, basically. I yeah. felt inept at everything, almost, really. Yeah. And I was constantly bullied. I was fat, you know. The kids, like, knew I was gay before I was, you know, or, yeah. or before I knew, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, I just felt like the world was not set up for me, you know. And I basically suck at everything. But here I am writing this poem and it's like, wow, this is cool. Like, I, I felt like I could do it. I felt mm -hmm. like there was something I could do. And that poem ended up going to Expo 67, where it was uh, 
aired in the Monsanto exhibit or something. How cool. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> sort of. And, uh, <laughs> and um, so uh, that was my first taste of fame, if you will. Right. It was like be, going to an ad agency in New York you know, like big shot ad agency and having my portrait taken. Or whatever. And um, so I, I finally figured out something I could do, you know. And so that continued into uh, studying with Alan and, and going to Naropa and really being a serious poetry student for a couple of, you know, I wrote nothing but poetry almost into my late 20s. Really. Oh, interesting. Um, but poetry frustrated me uh, ultimately because I was never sure how good I was and the poetry world was so political that if you gave a reading all your friends would say oh god that was amazing yeah they'd say that for everybody right. who was their friend who was in their club whatever club it might be mm-hmm. so i felt like i could never um i didn't have any absolute standard against which i could measure myself mm-hmm. you know so i didn't know if i was even good and looking back, it's funny, I looked back at a poetry manuscript that I haven't looked at in a decade, uh, that Alan, actually, his handwritten notes are in the margins. Um, and I thought, well, this kind of sucks, actually. It's like imitation Alan, you know. Uh, but uh, eventually what I found was that all the craft that I learned under Alan writing poetry and then I learned studying poetry. I got a master's degree in English literature. Was useful in prose. And in prose, I could make things happen in the world. Like uh. once I started appearing in the uh, San Francisco Chronicle and whatnot, um, my words could have an immediate effect. Um, although, a funny little anecdote. Um, I once had a... a a story about Allen Ginsberg, actually, published uh, uh, in the Sunday Magazine. It was the cover story. And so there was a picture of me and Alan on the cover of the Sunday Magazine of the b- biggest daily newspaper in San Francisco, back when newspapers were a thing. Right. And so I was like, I was all thrilled with myself, you know, wow, I'm on the cover of this magazine. And then like two days later, I'm standing on the street and this wind is blowing a piece of paper up the street and it's my picture. <laughs> Yeah, I suddenly realized, like, well, it all passeth away. <laughs> Fame is fleeting. <laughs> but, you know, so then I wrote Neurotribes, which I was almost certain everyone would hate for various reasons. I knew the anti-vaccine people would hate it because I showed yeah. that their whole entire trip is based on lies and BS. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought that Autistic people might not like it because I'm not autistic. Mm. I thought parents might not like it because it's not like, you know, top 10 tips to make your child act like he's not autistic. You know, right, right. It, it was very positive about um, certain aspects of thinking differently. Yeah. And, um, you know, so for five years I was having anxiety attacks, uh, unable to sleep. Um, but then it came out and, you know, frankly, I mean, some people hated it, sure. The anti-vaxxers certainly hated it. Sure. But um, mostly everybody loved it. It won the Samuel Johnson Prize in Britain, which is their major nonfiction prize that a science book had never won before. Wow. Wow. Um, I spoke at the United Nations. I mean, it was wow. like being shot out of a cannon, really. <laughs> you know? 
So, so that was really good. And there's a certain kind of lack of self-confidence that I probably am now recovered from. Oh, good. Wow. Well, it's wonderful. And it helped me just as someone who works with families um, who have autistic children a lot and works with autistic children. It helped me a lot to just rethink things, you know, like um, just kind of rewired the way that I approach those relationships. Um, and I'm looking forward to, I mean, I just finished it. So a month ago or whatever. So I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, how much of an impact it has on my actual interactions with autistic kids. Cause it certainly rewired the way I reading the book changed the way I think about those interactions, you know, like even as, as little as things like, um, the term high functioning, right. Being something that is, is not, is very commonly used, but is not necessarily uh, accurate or appropriate, right? Uh, um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, as, a, as an autistic uh, person, Laura Tosanchik put it, is the problem with terms like high functioning and low functioning is that if you if you're called low functioning, then your attributes or strengths are ignored, and mm-hmm. if you're called high functioning, then your challenges uh, are ignored, mm-hmm. and that's really important, right? Have you ever, is any of your poetry published anywhere? Like a, yeah, a sure, in little anthologies, but uh, okay. I mean, I haven't written a poem in, I don't know, a very long time. But, you know, I was part of the kind of poetry, uh, you know, there's always this sort of simmering, you know, young poets, you know. I, I, this was sort of before um, uh, Poetry Slams, mm. so I was never into that. Okay. But, um, I mean, they, they can be good. They, they can be awful, but they can be good. I just always thought they were always around. <laughs> I guess yeah, I- no. The, you know, well, I mean, they're kind of based on, you know, Beat Generation right. or Kerouac, you know. Right. But right. Um, they can be a little bit lax in the craft department. Uh, you know, they can be great. But, I mean, the problem with poetry is that it's the reason why I stopped writing it there's no absolute standard Mm. to measure yourself against and poetry evaluation is so subjective while not being entirely objective. Like there are actually good poems and bad poems and it's possible Mm. to tell which is which, but poetry evaluation is so subjective that even if you have a university professor who's a published poet telling you that your poem is good or not, it may be the opposite. That's really you know, like interesting. There's, there's no way of knowing. Do you think music is, is similar in that way? I do, but um, yeah, you know, I always feel awkward when, this is almost like saying too much, but I always feel awkward when like a friend of mine who I really like, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I just wrote this song, you know, yeah. and like, it's like, like a vault. You know? Yeah. Like, what do you say? You know, you say like, thank you. That was really nice. You know, it, it's um, so hard, man. I, I, yeah. in the position that I've put myself in with this show and with my, my writing about music, I often get asked for feedback on music, you know, and I don't feel qualified to give it. If I love it, I will gush about it and I feel comfortable gushing about it. If I, if I don't love it, I don't know what to say. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't know no, I know when people like, <laughs> I get like about five requests a day to blur books. No uh, exaggeration. Wow. And, uh, you know, I just say like, no, I can't say yes or no until I see it. And unless I love it, I'm not going to say anything. 
mm-hmm. you know. That's a and good way so, to do it. Yeah, but, you know, the problem then is uh, there are tons of people out there who've worked very hard on their books for years, and then I read it, and it's like, mm, no, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and uh, then they just don't hear from me, you know. Mm. And I, I feel like kind of a douche. But, you know. but what are you going to do? I mean, it, I guess when people ask for feedback, you know, you, I guess you can feel comfortable giving it, but, but I don't, you know, I guess we should feel comfortable giving it if someone's asking for it. Right. But, um, I just, for whatever, I don't know if maybe that's a confidence thing about, especially when it comes to feedback on something like music or writing something that I also do. It's like, it's kind of harder for me to, it's almost like, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to jinx myself. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I do feel qualified uh, to evaluate writing about autism in particular. Uh, um, I feel semi-qualified to to evaluate poetry, but um, but uh, you know, in a way, I'm not. I can't be absolutely confident. But with autism, I know the history of it so in such detail, mm-hmm. and I know the what is considered important by autistic people in the neurodiversity movement that I feel confident in evaluating a manuscript. Mm. Uh, And plus the depressing truth is that if you become good at something, you see that the mistakes that are made in that realm are very common. Mm. (laughs) It's like autism books that are bad are oftentimes bad in the same ways. Oh, interesting. Yeah. If I open the book, which has happened like a dozen times now. If I open the book and it's like the first scene is like, his poop was smeared all, you know, no, <laughs> sorry. I don't care what the rest of the book says. You know, if, if the first uh, autistic character in your book is pooping, you know, or something, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know? So anyway. Oh my goodness. Oh, Steve, thank you. We always end on, you've given me so much time. It's been great. We always end on um, what you're getting down on. So like, what are you, what art are you consuming? What are you listening to? What are you uh, maybe reading? Uh, maybe a film you've seen lately that got you fired up? Sure. Um, let me think of what, uh, well, I started watching Lovecraft Country the other day. Mm-hmm. That's a, you know, it, it's intermixes uh, racial social history, Mm -hmm. uh, history of oppression and racism in the South Mm -hmm. with wild monster movie stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, complete science fiction horror. And in that sense, it's very innovative. And, um, I thought it was really interesting. There's only been one episode aired so far. Mm -hmm. Um, like a district 13 kind of thing. Say it again, please. Like a district 13 kind of thing. Yeah, kind of, yes. Um, Except this is with actual black people rather than... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the great thing is that, I mean, the monsters are, you know, no spoilers, but they're not pretty, those monsters. Right, right. But the real horror is racism. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, a very valuable point. Um, What am I listening to? Uh, well, I've been listening to actually tracks from Crosby's next album. Awesome. Uh, which, but I, I listen to a lot of stuff. Like now I'm going to, because the cello player who I had in my backyard yesterday played a bunch of pieces I'd never heard of. I'm going to check those out. Awesome. Um, and then what I'm writing is 
I have a contract for another book. Um, like everybody's projects, it's been kind of delayed by the pandemic. But my next book is the story of cystic fibrosis. The book is called The Taste of Salt. And why is that a story? Uh, you know, it's a relatively rare condition. It's a story because um, 40 years ago, if, if you got cystic fibrosis, you were dead. It was a terminal diagnosis. You would die as a baby. Um, but people came together and developed ways to keep people with cystic fibrosis alive into their 30s, 40s, and 50s, including one of my very best friends, one of my favorite people on earth, a guy named Phil Weissar, fellow deadhead, real sweetheart. I love him. Um, and I had known him for several years through Facebook, like deadhead connections. And, you know, one day I came out to him as gay and I hoped he didn't freak out. And he was like, oh, that's no problem. By the way, I have this disease called cystic fibrosis. Oh, wow. So like, I, I realized I didn't know that much about it. And um, they have just this year, it's, this year is a very mixed year for people with cystic fibrosis because they're very vulnerable to infection. So COVID is a nightmare. For them. Wow, yeah. But, um, and in fact, everybody, as Phil told me the other day, 2020 was the year that everyone got cystic fibrosis because <laughs> everybody now has to be very uptight about infection. Ah. As people with cystic fibrosis have been. But it was also the year that this drug, and you know, I'm a very cynical, skeptical science writer, ex writer for Wired. I never use this word. This drug called Trikafta is a miracle drug, and I'll tell you why. Um, Phil was, the last time I went to see him in Cleveland, he was diagnosed the day I got there with so called end stage cystic fibrosis. He's in his mid thirties. He was going to die. He was going to be listed for transplant and lung transplants are tough to survive. Like they're not, they're not like heart transplants. They're much more difficult. And um, we literally like, we didn't quite say the word goodbye, but our conversations were very um, real and grounded, you know, uh, he, he got Trikafta later that week. Um, this is a little gross, but it's a true thing about cystic fibrosis. Most people at CF have so much bacteria in their lungs that their mucus is green if they, if they cough it up, which they're supposed to do all the time. Phil's mucus has been green for a couple of decades. He took Trikafta for two days. His mucus was clear. Wow. And he's, he ran a 5K the other day. He wow. ran a 5K, wow! you know, and he, and he was listed for, for death, basically, uh, you know. So it's a very exciting story. Um, because of the pandemic, my, all my research trips to Europe had to be canceled. Uh, um, so the book is probably going to end up being delayed, you know. Uh, probably won't be uh, out for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, Neurotribes was supposed to take me a year and a half. It took five. <laughs> but I need to make money, particularly because all my gigs have dried up because yeah. of the pandemic. So anyway, thank you so much, Jason. It's so nice of you to be so generous with your time. Uh, thank you so much, Steve. This was such a pleasure. I really oh, appreciate it. Thanks so much, buddy. All right, Take care. Man. Take care. See you. Bye. Good boy.
Steve Silverman, y'all. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for supporting the show, telling friends about the show, uh, tweeting about the show, mentioning it on Facebook. I'm sure you are, hopefully. We're, we don't have Facebook anymore. But hopefully you're over there on Facebook mentioning the show. You're on Instagram talking about it. And uh, all of those are just free, painless ways to, to help us out. Give us a rating on your podcast app. Uh, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Those make a big difference as well. And uh, thank you so much again just for continuing to be such incredible fans and friends of the show. Um, I'm just so grateful we get to have guests like Steve Silberman. I mean, it's just such an honor and so incredible to think about how far this show has come in three years. We just celebrated three years. We had a three-year celebration for our Patreon patrons, patreon.com slash marinade podcast. If you want to join the community, um, we had this, the second of, uh, of our uh, happy hours and it was so much fun. And we just did it on zoom. And this time I had a surprise where uh, my good friend, Jordan Foley, the incredible songwriter showed up and, uh, and played a few songs and talked to us and answered some questions. It was really cool. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about making that a much more regular thing. So maybe once a month we could have kind of a mini concert and, uh, and hang and just check in. I mean, it's, it's crazy how much community there is. It, it, it's really, um, it's really heartwarming to me to see people who were otherwise not connected at all becoming friends through the marinade. It's just incredible. Um, so check it out if you if you can swing it. We have tiers starting for as little as $2 a month, which gets you most of the stuff on Patreon. For $10, you can get access to our Patreon-exclusive show, Jason's Journey, where I talk about the uh, the moments that, are, that have and continue to shape my creative life. All right, y'all, it's time for what I'm getting down on. Um, before I get into what I'm getting down on, stick around to the end. I've got an, another surprise for you. I've got a treat for you. Our good friend Patrick Hagerman uh, sent me a song the other day. Patrick is uh, a really wonderful songwriter based here in Orlando. Uh, you can find some of his stuff on YouTube. There's a, a few uh, songs up there, a few videos where you can catch his music. Um, he is just a really witty songwriter and um, he writes these these kind of heavier tunes as well but um, sometimes he'll just man he'll just leave you in stitches with the stuff that he writes uh, almost off the top of his head um, but he sent me one called I won't wear a mask I'm a man <laughs> uh, it's just wonderful so I'll, I'll play it at the end um, and uh, and give Patrick a little love uh, on social media as well. He's on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I assume he's on Instagram too, but you can find him everywhere. Hagerman Music, um, and uh, he's also got some a merch store where you can find some really cool uh, stuff, really cool T-shirts and yoga pants and coffee cups, all kinds of stuff. All right, now it's time for what I'm getting down on the segment of the show where I talk about the art that is inspiring me at the moment. Phantom Thread was recommended by Steve uh, on one of his social feeds. And so, uh, you know, when he recommends art, I tend to pay attention. Uh, I watched it and it's just stunning. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say no to a film starring Daniel Day-Lewis anyway, but um, he stars as a, a famous dressmaker in, the, in 1950s London who um, takes on a young waitress that is portrayed absolutely brilliantly uh, by an actress named Vicky Creeps. 
Kripes. I'm so sorry if I'm messing up that name, but uh, she's wonderful. K-R-I-E-P-S. Um, so her character is taken on as his muse. Paul Thomas Anderson directed it. Johnny Greenwood, famously of Radiohead, scored the film. It, it's just, just every aspect of this film is overwhelming. It's um, it's visually stunning. It, the acting is sublime. It's a near perfect film, and uh, so I highly recommend if you haven't seen it. Phantom Thread. I've been listening to a lot of different stuff. Um, a lot of Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. I, you know, I, I knew Nitty Gritty Dirt Band back in the '90s, Fishing in the Dark, and some of their famous country hits. But um, I went back and listened to their the, the deeper part of their catalog, their first couple of records, Uncle Charlie and his dog Teddy. Is uh, it's just an outrageously beautiful piece of art. I, I am crazy about it. I keep listening to it. Um, and then they had this whole circle series where they just get these heavyweights of Americana, rock, uh, folk, country music, and um, and put these records together that are absolutely beautiful. I mean, just incredible musicians. Um, great, great stuff. And then I'm reading John McEwen, who played banjo. Um, in Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and has had a successful solo career as well. Uh, reading his memoir, The Life I've Picked, which is really interesting. I mean, you know, from him being friends with Steve Martin, working at a magic shop in California and having a lifelong friendship to playing in the Soviet Union, the first American band to play in the Soviet Union. There's just so many wild stories from this guy's life. Um, that are super interesting. So that's been a fun read as well. Um, and so those two things, of course, football is back. I'm not sure if that counts as art. So I'm watching a ton of football using much <laughs> using hours of my Sunday, not writing or cre- creating anything, but watching grown men create, uh, commit legal batteries against each other. Um, but I've also been trying to make sure I just, um, I just resubscribed to the Atlantic I'm trying to make sure that I'm balancing keeping up with what's going on in the world while also maintaining my sanity. It's an on, you know, it's an evergreen problem, but uh, or challenge. But I think I've gotten it down a little bit, and I thought I'd just briefly touch on it um, in case somebody else is kind of going through a similar struggle. Um, what I did, what I've done is I've I've kind of like made sure that. I'm using my social media in a more um, in in a more responsible way. I guess is the best way to put it. I, I'm just trying to to ration my social media usage. So I just kind of set a, a rule for myself, which is I don't touch social media till I'm I'm done with my day, basically. Right. So I get up and I do my workout. I do my morning pages. I eat breakfast. I go to work work my day job, and then uh, come home. And if I have something else I need to do, I do that first. Now, am I perfect at this? No, but it has been helping a lot. Um, I took all the apps off my phone that had social media, except Instagram, just because you can't really use Instagram unless it's on your phone, and I don't want to keep downloading it and deleting it. But I don't have Twitter on my phone anymore, so I have to be in front of my computer um, or pull it up on the browser, which is a pain in the ass, on my phone, um, and I just cut the cord on on Facebook entirely, which was a, a great decision. And those of you who are still on Facebook, I highly recommend getting off of it and never turning back. Um, 
So, but what that has done is it has allowed me to be more purposeful in what I'm consuming. Um, and, you know, I still love Twitter. I mean, absolutely love it. So being able to use it in a way that's um, a little more responsible has has uh, driven me to things like The Atlantic that I used to read religiously before I spent so much time on social media. Um, so I'm trying to seek out those experiences where I'm, I'm reading something like The Atlantic that's really keeping up with what's going on in the world and really putting out some great content. Um, and so that, that specifically, that publication specifically has been a big part of my life, my life for a long time, but I'm really grateful for it right now and, and what they are doing to try and keep this democracy afloat. Y'all hang on voting in November. Speaking of which I got a Patrick Hagerman tune for you exclusive. I'm pretty sure. I don't think this, you can hear this one anywhere else, but, um, Patrick's a wonderful guy and a great songwriter. So Go check him out on the interwebs and enjoy this tune. Until next time, if you can swing it, go out and create something. If not, don't beat yourself up about it. Cheers, y'all. I won't wear a mask. I'm a man. This virus is only God's plan. To weed out the devil and take him to task I'll die for my freedom, I won't wear a mask You leftist and liberals, I wish you could see Your obvious hatred of this country Your psychotic socialist shepherds of shame Have covered their faces so you do the same you won't find me wearing no N95 I want to be able to look in the eyes Of like-minded Christians who trust in the Lord And want to see freedom restored I won't wear a mask, I'm a man This virus is only God's plan to weed out the devil and take him to task I'll die for my freedom, I won't wear a mask Ask Chester A. Arthur and William H. Taft Ask Benjamin Franklin if he wore a mask The answer is no and I bet you know why Have you ever heard the phrase, live free or die? So rally around people with patriot pride Grab all your ammo for freedom we ride Let's march to the state house and dawn up the stairs Screaming for freedom with our faces bare I won't wear a mask, I'm a man This virus is only God's plan to weed out the devil and take him to task I'll die for my freedom, I won't wear a mask We'll weed out the devil and take him to task We'll die for our freedom We won't wear a mask Tremendous, absolutely tremendous